0: We continue with the opinion of the court in Jack Daniels Properties, Inc. v. VIP Products, LLC. Beginning with Part 2 of the opinion. Part 2 Our first and more substantial question concerns Jack Daniels' infringement claim. Should the company have had to satisfy the Rogers threshold test before the case could proceed to the Lanham Act's likelihood of confusion inquiry. The parties address that issue in the broadest possible way, either attacking or defending Rogers in all its possible applications. Today we choose a narrower path. Without deciding whether Rogers has merit in other contexts, we hold that it does not, when an alleged infringer uses a trademark in the way the Lanham Act most cares about, as a designation of source for the infringer's own goods. VIP used the marks derived from Jack Daniels in that way, so the infringement claim here rises or falls on likelihood of confusion. But that inquiry is not blind to the expressive aspect of the bad spaniel's toy that the Ninth Circuit highlighted. Beyond source designation, VIP uses the marks at issue in an effort to parody or make fun of Jack Daniels. And that kind of message matters in assessing confusion because consumers are not so likely to think that the maker of a mocked product is itself doing the mocking. Section A. To see why the Rogers test does not apply here, first consider the case from which it emerged. The defendants there had produced and distributed a film by Federico Fellini titled Ginger and Fred about two fictional Italian cabaret dancers who imitated Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. When the film was released in the United States, Ginger Rogers objected under the Lanham Act to the use of her name. The Second Circuit rejected the claim. It reasoned that the titles of artistic works, like the works themselves, have an expressive element implicating First Amendment values, and at the same time such names posed only a slight risk of confusing consumers about either the source or the content of the work. So the court concluded a threshold filter was appropriate. When a title with at least some artistic relevance was not explicitly misleading as to source or content, the claim could not go forward. But the court made clear that it was not announcing a general rule. In the typical case, the court thought, the name of a product was more likely to indicate its source and to be taken by consumers in just that way. Over the decades, the lower courts adopting Rogers have confined it to similar cases in which a trademark is used not to designate a work source, but solely to perform some other expressive function. So, for example, when the toymaker Mattel sued a band over the song Barbie Girl, with lyrics including Life in Plastic, It's Fantastic, and I'm a Blonde Bimbo Girl in a Fantasy World, the Ninth Circuit applied Rogers. That was because, the court reasoned, the band's use of the Barbie name was not as a source identifier. The use did not speak to the song's origin. Similarly, the Eleventh Circuit dismissed a suit under Rogers when a sports artist, depicted the Crimson Tide's trademarked football uniforms solely to memorialize a notable event in football history. And when Louis Vuitton sued because a character in the film, The Hangover, Part 2, described his luggage as a Louis Vuitton, a district court dismissed the complaint under Rogers, all parties agreed that the film was not using the Louis Vuitton mark as its own identifying trademark. When that is so, the court reasoned, confusion will usually be unlikely, and the interest in free expression counsels in favor of avoiding the standard Lanham Act test. The same courts, though, routinely conduct likelihood of confusion analysis without mentioning Rogers when trademarks are used as trademarks, i.e. to designate source. And the Second Circuit, Rogers' Home Court, has made especially clear that Rogers does not apply in that context. For example, that court held that an offshoot political group's use of the trademark United We Stand America got no Rogers help because the use was as a source identifier. True, that slogan had expressive content, but the defendant group, the court reasoned, was using it as a mark to suggest the same source identification as the original political movement. And similarly, the Second Circuit, indeed the judge who authored Rogers, rejected a motorcycle mechanic's view that his modified version of Harley Davidson's Bar and Shield logo was an expressive parody entitled To Rogers' Protection. The court acknowledged that the mechanic's adapted logo conveyed a somewhat humorous message. But his use of the logo was a quintessential trademark use, to brand his repair and parts business through signage, a newsletter, and t-shirts with images similar to Harley Davidson's. The point is that whatever you make of Rogers, and again, we take no position on that issue, it has always been a cabined doctrine. If we put this case to the side, the Rogers test has applied only to cases involving non-trademark uses, or otherwise said, cases in which the defendant has used the mark at issue in a non-source identifying way. The test has not insulated from ordinary trademark scrutiny the use of trademarks as trademarks to identify or brand a defendant's goods or services. We offer as one last example of that limitation a case with a striking resemblance to this one. It, too, involved dog products, though perfumes rather than toys— Yes, the defendant sold a line of pet perfumes whose names parody Elegant Brands sold for human consumption. The product at issue was named Timmy Hole Digger, which Tommy Hilfiger didn't much like. The defendant asked for application of Rogers. The court declined it, relying on Harley Davidson. Rogers, the court explained, kicks in when a suit involves solely non-trademark uses of a mark, that is, where the trademark is not being used to indicate the source or origin of a product, but only to convey a different kind of message. When, instead, the use is at least in part for source identification, when the defendant may be trading on the goodwill of the trademark owner to market its own goods, Rogers has no proper role. And that is so, the court continued, even if the defendant is also making an expressive comment, including a parody of a different product. The defendant is still making trademark use of another's mark, and must meet an infringement claim on the usual battleground of likelihood of confusion." That conclusion fits trademark law and reflects its primary mission. From its definition of trademark onward, the Lanham Act views marks as source identifiers, as things that function to indicate the source of goods and so to distinguish them from ones manufactured or sold by others. The cardinal sin under the law, as described earlier, is to undermine that function it is to confuse consumers about source, to make some of them think that one producer's products are another's. And that kind of confusion is most likely to arise when someone uses another's trademark as a trademark, meaning again as a source identifier, rather than for some other expressive function. To adapt one of the cases noted above, suppose a filmmaker uses a Louis Vuitton suitcase To convey something about a character, he is the kind of person who wants to be seen with the product, but doesn't know how to pronounce its name. Now think about a different scenario. A luggage manufacturer uses an ever-so-slightly modified LV logo to make inroads in the suitcase market. The greater likelihood of confusion inheres in the latter use because it is the one conveying information or misinformation about who is responsible for a product. That kind of use implicates the core concerns of trademark law and creates the paradigmatic infringement case. So the Rogers test, which offers an escape from the likelihood of confusion inquiry and a shortcut to dismissal, has no proper application. Nor does that result change because the use of a mark has other expressive content, i.e. because it conveys some message on top of source. Here is where we most dramatically part ways with the Ninth Circuit, which thought that because Bad Spaniels communicates a humorous message, it is automatically entitled to Rogers' protection. On that view, Rogers might take over much of the world for trademarks are often expressive in any number of ways. Consider how one liqueur brand's trade dress, beyond identifying source, tells a story with a bottle in the shape of a friar's habit, connoting the product's olden monastic roots. Or take a band name that not only identifies the band, but expresses a view about social issues or note how a mark can both function as a mark and have parodic content, as the court found in the hilfiger Holdigger litigation. The examples could go on and on. As a leading treatise puts the point, the Ninth Circuit's expansion of Rogers potentially encompasses just about everything because names, phrases, symbols, designs— and their varied combinations often contained some expressive message unrelated to source. That message may well be relevant in assessing the likelihood of confusion between two marks, as we address below, but few cases would even go to the likelihood of confusion inquiry if all expressive content triggered the Rogers filter. In that event, the Rogers exception would become the general rule in conflict with court's long-standing view of trademark law. The Ninth Circuit was mistaken to believe that the First Amendment demanded such a result. The court thought that trademark law would otherwise fail to account for the full weight of the public's interest in free expression. But as the Mattel, i.e. Barbie, court noted, when a challenged trademark use functions as source-identifying, Trademark rights play well with the First Amendment. Whatever First Amendment rights you may have in calling the brew you make in your bathtub, Pepsi, are outweighed by the buyer's interest in not being fooled into buying it. Or in less colorful terms, to the extent a trademark is confusing as to a product source, the law can protect consumers and trademark owners. Or yet again, in an especially clear rendering, the trademark law generally prevails over the First Amendment when another's trademark, or a confusingly similar mark, is used without permission as a means of source identification. So for those uses, the First Amendment does not demand a threshold inquiry, like the Rogers test. When a mark is used as a mark, except potentially in rare situations, the likelihood of confusion inquiry does enough work to account for the interest in free expression. Section B. Here, the district court correctly held that VIP uses its bad spaniels trademark and trade dress as source identifiers of its dog toy. In fact, VIP conceded that point below. In its complaint, VIP alleged that it both owns and uses the Bad Spaniel's trademark and trade dress for its durable rubber squeaky novelty dog toy. The company thus represented in this very suit that the mark and dress, although not registered, are used to identify and distinguish VIP's goods and to indicate their source. In this court, VIP says the complaint was a mere form allegation, a matter of rote. But even if we knew what that meant, VIP has said and done more in the same direction. First, there is the way the product is marketed. On the hang tag, the Bad Spaniel's logo sits opposite the conceitedly trademarked Silly Squeakers logo, with both appearing to serve the same source-identifying function. And second, there is VIP's practice as to other products in the Silly Squeakers line. The company has consistently argued in court that it owns, though has never registered, the trademark and trade dress, in dog toys like Jose Pero, Jose Cuervo, and Heine Sniffen, Heineken. And it has chosen to register the names of still other dog toys, including Dos Peros, Smella Arpa, and Doggy Walker. Put all that together, and more than form or rote emerges VIP's conduct is its own admission that it is using the Bad Spaniel's, nay, Jack Daniel's, trademarks as trademarks to identify product source. Because that is so, the only question in this suit going forward is whether the Bad Spaniel's marks are likely to cause confusion. There is no threshold test working to kick out all cases involving expressive works but a trademark's expressive message, particularly a parodic one, as VIP asserts, may properly figure in assessing the likelihood of confusion. A parody must conjure up enough of an original to make the object of its critical wit recognizable. Yet to succeed, the parody must also create contrasts, so that its message of ridicule or pointed humor comes clear. And once that is done, if that is done, a parody is not often likely to create confusion. Self-deprecation is one thing, self-mockery far less ordinary. So although VIP's effort to ridicule Jack Daniels does not justify use of the Rogers test, it may make a difference in the standard trademark analysis. Consistent with our ordinary practice, We remand that issue to the courts below. Part 3 Our second question, more easily dispatched, concerns Jack Daniel's claim of dilution by tarnishment. Recall that the Ninth Circuit dismissed that claim based on one of the Lanham Act's exclusions from dilution liability for any non-commercial use of a mark. On the court's view, the use of a mark may be non-commercial even if used to sell a product. And VIP's use is so, the court continued, because it parodies and conveys a humorous message about Jack Daniels. We need not express a view on the first step of that reasoning because we think the second step wrong. However wide the scope of the non-commercial use exclusion, it cannot include as the Ninth Circuit thought, every parody or humorous commentary. To begin to see why, consider the scope of another of the Lanham Act's exclusions, this one for any fair use. As described earlier, the fair use exclusion specifically covers uses parodying, criticizing, or commenting upon a famous mark owner. But not in every circumstance— Critically, the fair use exclusion has its own exclusion. It does not apply when the use is as a designation of source for the person's own goods or services. In that event, no parody, criticism, or commentary will rescue the alleged diluter. It will be subject to liability regardless. The problem with the Ninth Circuit's approach is that it reverses that statutorily directed result, as this case illustrates. Given the fair use provisions, carve out parody and criticism and commentary, humorous or otherwise, is exempt from liability only if not used to designate source. Whereas, on the Ninth Circuit's view, parody and so forth is exempt always, regardless whether it designates source. The expansive view of the non-commercial use exclusion effectively nullifies Congress's express limit on the fair use exclusion for parity, etc. Just consider how the Ninth Circuit's construction played out here. The District Court had rightly concluded that because VIP used the challenged marks as source identifiers, it could not benefit from the fair use exclusion for parody. The Ninth Circuit took no issue with that ruling, but it shielded VIP's parodic uses anyway. In doing so, the court negated Congress's judgment about when and when not parody and criticism and commentary is excluded from dilution liability. Part 4 Today's opinion is narrow. We do not decide whether the Rogers test is ever appropriate or how far the non commercial use exclusion goes. On infringement, we hold only that Rogers does not apply when the challenged use of a mark is as a mark. On dilution, we hold only that the non commercial exclusion does not shield parity or other commentary when its use of a mark is similarly source-identifying. It is no coincidence that both our holdings turn on whether the use of a mark is serving a source-designation function. The Lanham Act makes that fact crucial in its effort to ensure that consumers can tell where goods come from. For the reasons stated, we vacate the judgment below and remand for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.